Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with an old buddy of mine, Ben Bunn. Ben is a retired Airborne Infantry Officer, former enlisted Green Beret, and veteran of the Global War on Terror. He's the owner of Cigar City CrossFit in his hometown of Tampa, Florida, and director of business development for Bravo Sierra. You know, you have to align yourself with brands and organizations that are authentic to you, share the same core values, and are something that you can really get excited about. And that's what's been helpful about, you know, owning a CrossFit gym. And that's what's been helpful about working for Bravo Sierra is they're, they're both organizations or things that I've, I've been very passionate about. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. It was excellent. I thought it was good. I, I really, I loved his, I mean, I loved Nate's as well because like, I mean, we went to, Matt, we went to the Q course with Nate. Like we were like hung around him. Like we were around him all the time. I had forgotten. I remember he was hanging out at uh, George's house. He yeah. had that like, it, it was almost like the frat house, but we weren't, none of us had been to college. Yeah, it was, it was, that was like the frat house roller coaster. Like we would all go over to George's house and get like, completely wasted you know and just got yep. terrible i think at one point they had found miller high life on sale at costco and had bought like 30 cases of miller high life and it was like in either somebody just had it and like every saturday would be like a cannonball run with like we gotta drink these miller high lifes we gotta drink <laughs> as many as we can and i was like we don't but then like you know we would- <laughs> they had matt aka pig pen mm-hmm. who was just rife with scabies in phase two <laughs> yeah. it's sitting i remember waking up and he's like waking up on a sunday when you get to do laundry and he's on a cot next to me just digging in it in his crotch just like <sighs> like <laughs> i mean he was he was pig pen yeah yeah he was he was a nasty little man you know him and like you know, Keith would be sitting next to you just talking about, like, eating food constantly. Not even good food. He would just talk about eating, like, a, a bowl of Uncle Ben's rice with pepper on it. Talking about it like he was having some gourmet shit. Like he was having a Michelin-rated meal or something. Ridiculous. Yeah. God Keith damn. And I were, uh, Keith and I were roommates for yeah. a while. Yeah. But you guys were all echoes, so you got to graduate a year earlier than me. Yeah. I literally, I literally, fun, fun fact, I literally graduated the Q course several weeks later, was like in Mosul, Iraq for like seven months and came back and Matt was still in the Q course. And I like, like was (laughs) stayed at his house for a week. Like I would just like wake up on the couch. Yeah. I haven't seen you in so long. Yeah. It's been forever, right? It has been. It's like 15 years or something. Unless Um, I... Unless I randomly came through Tampa at once or something like you that. You did. And I remember it. I remember it to this day. So you were here in 2000, like in 2008 or 2009. Remember I choked out that, that captain in my, in my apartment living room or whatever and, <laughs> and tossed him in a bathtub. Um, and you were like, oh, to give him a pass. He's in the army, bro. Um, but, uh, and then he came back through another time when I was still in college. And I remember we went to a burger place. And I remember it was the weirdest shit because we're all sitting down and Matt um, orders uh, a, a fucking glass of milk like he's Daniel Day-Lewis from their will be, <laughs> from, you know that movie? I'd like a, yeah. my name's Daniel Plainview, uh, Plainview, I'd like a rare burger and a 
16 ounce glass, a pint of milk, like just orders milk at a rest at a normal ass restaurant, like a fucking glass of milk. So it's yeah, been a, there will be blood. That's a fantastic movie. It's great. You know, there's not a lot of the, the movie is unsettling for a lot of people because a lot of movies will have, I mean, this is settling for a shitload of reasons if we're being honest, yeah, but, uh, exactly. but thanks. it was written for that purpose. Yeah. Thank you. Upton Sinclair. But, um, it would, uh, it's not narrated in the same way that most movies are. So like most movies, you know, like Morgan Freeman will like have a voiceover explaining like what's happening or like actors will talk out loud about their feelings. They're like, I can't believe this is happening to us, Jeffrey, you know? And like, but in that movie, instead of speaking out loud about what's happening, there's just like prolonged moments of like awkward silence, tension, like anger articulated only by their acting, not, not by them actually, you know, narrating what they're doing as they're doing it. And I think that movie is unsettling to a lot of people for that very reason, but only Daniel day Lewis could have done some shit like that. Yeah. That, uh, is like just this constant tension in the movie. And I think the first time you watch it, you're like, you kind of wonder if you got the whole thing and then you watch it again. You're like, Oh, I did get the whole thing. It's just that insane. He's yeah, that insane. It's, yeah. It's just, it's crazy. It's just like a, it's a portrait of ruthlessness and greed and essentially what, what happens when the best of our character is used in the worst ways. Right. He could have, he could yeah. have done so much more with, with what he, like he was obviously a salesman, but you know, he could have done so much more with it outside of, essentially leveling communities he could have built communities i guess is the yeah, takeaway there it's crazy about being like you know a hundred years ago you just you have this kid you you know he kind of doesn't want him but he's like i got the kid like yeah. what am i gonna do yeah. you know, the, kid get, <laughs> the kid gets blown up he's deaf and he's like can i send this kid anywhere no okay i guess i'll keep him yeah and it's like just so it's like so ruthlessly frontier you know frontier living yeah. Uh, and then at the beginning when he falls down, you know, he falls down, has to like crawl, you know, miles to breaks his leg, crawls out of the mine shaft. You almost want to feel for him. And then the, you know, the whole, the entire rest of the movie is like, no, he's actually evil. Like, why, why did I feel bad for him? Yeah. He's not but, a good dude. Not a good dude. Yeah. I love the milkshake, uh, the milkshake, uh, exchange though. Yeah. Anyway, we, it's not a podcast about there will be blood, but uh, maybe we'll do a we'll do a bonus episode. We're yeah. bringing Chase back on, so really? we texted Chase. Yeah, we texted Chase the other day because we talk about Apocalypse Now in like six or so episodes of you know just quick references. I was like, hey, dude, there. So I got uh, I got the book Heart of Darkness, which I've I think I've read but lost it. So we got that again. So we're both going to read Heart of Darkness. And then watch the movie, and then watch like the movie about the movie called Hearts of Darkness. It, it's and Arthur Conan just, Doyle is who, is who wrote that, yeah. No, it's Joseph Conrad. Ah, oh, that's right. God it's damn. like a dude who wrote who wrote like maritime stories. Yeah, like all of his all of his shit is about being on a boat. I think he's Polish and and was like an English sailor or something. If I get that wrong, I have the power to cut it out. But if you know, if not, anyway. So we're going to get into some more of that stuff. And then I know that you uh, you said you like the Megan episode. She is working on a new show with a former teammate of mine, Noah. And uh, maybe they'll release that sometime soon. So, yeah, you could you, of, you could easily do a whole a whole show about Apocalypse. Just the scene where like Martin Sheen is 
doing karate in his hotel room, you know, like that. <laughs> you know, that was he was that was real. He was having like an episode. He had been up all night, like drinking and doing opium. And like Oliver Stone, like walked in on him, was like, oh, shit. He's like, quick, go get the cameraman. And like <laughs> and then just like sets up in the corner with a pair of sunglasses and was just like agging him on. He was like, you're beautiful, man. Look at you. Look how beautiful you are. You're dangerous. He's like, look at that. You're sleek and savvy. <laughs> you know, just like grossly egging him on in the corner while Martin Sheen's having like an existential crisis and doing karate and hurting himself in a set of nasty old briefs in Vietnam yeah. on like, you know, probably so shit-faced on like weird off-brand rum and like DMT and opium or something. That, it, yeah. that, that version of Martin Sheen would be the perfect guest for Joe Rogan. I would love to see him on that show. If we could just go back in time, time travel existed. I was, I wouldn't use it to get rich. I would just use it to mostly interview Martin Sheen in his more formative years, you know, sitting, uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor and in, in your, uh, in, in your briefs, looking at your bleeding hand, wondering what planet you're on. Yeah, basically. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, we should have used that as a segue into the Q course, but we already talked about that. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. We can still go. We can circle back. You can edit this however you want. You know. Yeah. Time totally. is a construct. We only. We only. Uh, we, only sh- we only shorten. We don't like plug and play. We don't fuck up the order. Yeah. Because uh, I. I just know that I'm. I'm not good enough to be accountable for something that like just comes a- across totally out of context and and we fucked up the edit. Yeah. I met you in the Q course. I think we were in. Uh, we were in small unit tactics. Yep. You were you were one of the guard guys, one of the weird, one of those weird guard guys that came to the Q course, right? Yeah. So I was, was like, like a whole I, band of you. It, yeah, it was, it was interesting because I, I was in the National Guard at the time, and there were several of us that were all attending at the same time, all from the same unit, all from the same area of Florida. But what was unique is at the time, even though I was a National Guard guy, like I had like been to combat already, like twice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got deployed twice, which was kind of like. Um, it was a little irregular at that time, I guess. Like, not everybody was walking around with deployments. So it, it didn't necessarily give me a leg up, but it was strange because I had kind of a, a, a little bit more context than a lot of people who were attending the Q course at that time because when we would do, like, goofy scenarios, you know, pregnant woman with a suicide vest or, or you know, weird, you know, guy with a, with a cell phone, you know, screaming uh, Allah Akbar or something like that, like, I would be like, kill him. You know, like shoot, shoot the <laughs> shoot the person immediately. This is getting ready to go south. You know, uh, so like I had like a strange level of ruthlessness present in how I would like conduct myself, um, even when I was like essentially uh, live action role playing in the Q course. A lot of that happening versus you know those of us who just don't know at that point. We're like, uh, this is what we're being taught, so I'm just trying to do my best job here. Yeah, you were like a go to war or go to jail kid, right? So I had, I had gotten in quite a bit of trouble when I was in high school. You know, I'd gotten involved in a series of goofy high school pranks that had really just like gotten a little bit out of control, like gone, gone next level. So there was a, a, a good friend of mine at the time. His name was uh, Tony Walters. And, you know, him and I were like really always we had this attitude that we were going to stick it to the man. And, you know, we had started kind of hanging out with each other our senior year what was interesting is, you know, I wasn't exceptionally athletic or popular or, you know, girls didn't find me attractive, but like Tony was all those things. Like he was like 
on the football team, handsome, came from an affluent background, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I was really kind of attracted um, to how smart and fit and, and cool he was. We started hanging out and we had gotten into a couple of pranks that we had done with one another. But he had been expelled and I was consistently getting either in school suspension or being suspended for being disrespectful or lack of attendance, this kind of stuff, which was interesting because my mother was an administrator at that high school. So even despite the fact that my mother was, you know, a credentialed administrator with with the organization, I still was just kind of a mess. But uh, a couple of the pranks got out of control. You know, we had essentially racked up significant damage, like damaged infrastructure, not just for like the school, but like Hillsborough County. And they assigned a, a, a district attorney to start working the case. And then all of a sudden there was like six detectives very interested in my personal life, Tony's personal life, and another gentleman who was also involved uh, hit or miss in some of the pranks. And, um, you know, t- towards the end of it all, um, you know, I had almost been expelled. And as a means by which to avoid prosecution, I essentially had to ante up to what I had done, what my part in it was. And then also uh, had joined the National Guard as a way to show the district attorney, um, detectives, and uh, the presiding judge that ended up kind of sentencing without going to court. I think it was settled out of court, if I'm not mistaken, kind of to, to articulate to them that I was on the path to righteousness and would no longer, you know, be a tick on the hind parts of society in that way. But very interesting pranks. I mean, we went all out. I mean, we like took the golf carts that they used to cruise around school in and like drove them into the pond. They, you know, they pulled them out and rehabilitated them. And then we like drove, like dug a huge hole and then buried them halfway. So they were sticking out. So it looked like they had like torpedoed from the sky and landed into the ground. You know, we took a bunch of dirt and blocked in the doors and then, you know, super glued toothpicks into them and snapped them off so that it was impossible for people to enter the school one day. Um, we cemented the gate to the actual school shut so that the buses couldn't pull in one morning. I mean, all kinds of bad shit. I mean, we were in, I don't, it's very, it's very odd to me to even think that I were to even get in that level of mischief. But if you think about it, you have like so much energy or something, you don't have like an outlet. Yeah. I mean, I didn't play sports. Girls didn't want to pay attention to me. You know, like I I think I was one of those kids that, um, you know, glorified the movie dazed and confused. I was just waiting for the seventies to make a comeback where, just like being lazy and smoking pot was cool enough to get you by. And that like never, that never was the case. So, you know, I had a, a lot of misplaced energy to say the least. What, what was your first foray into the army? Like, so going from your national guard combo guy, right. And then you get called up or attached to someone says, Hey, we're going on the invasion. Yeah. So, you know, when I went, I mean, when I went to basic training, like, you know, I, I think before you get out of reception into actual basic training, you have to be able to run one mile in like eight and a half minutes or less, or else you have to, you know, stick around with these disgusting fat people and like only eat one one meal a day and get screamed at more often or something. Apologies to anybody that's listening to this; it's morbidly obese. I know it's not always a choice, and I apologize. But you know, and I like barely ran that mile in under eight and a half minutes, and when I did, I threw up and passed out. My first PT test, I did like twenty two push ups. I mean, that was a disgusting excuse uh, of a man. I mean, I, I wouldn't even characterize myself as a man. But, you know, I, I got through basic training, did okay, got through AIT, 
and came back home. And then like shortly thereafter, you know, September 11th happened and I found myself like in the initial evasion into Iraq. And at the time I was in a, a MLRS unit, like multiple launch rocket systems for anybody that's familiar with it. It's actually pretty rad. Like, I mean, they shoot telephone pole sized missiles. A pod of six can destroy like an entire grid square. I mean, it's a devastating weapon system, but they pulled me out of that unit and put me in a light infantry unit out of North Florida. And like, I kind of like ended up uh, doing a lot of time with both like the scouts and the mortar platoon who at the time had essentially just been like running missions throughout the city for the headquarters company. Like, so like they would just drive people around, do patrols. Like if, if like the S3 or the S2 had to go meet with somebody, they would like assign you know, members of the scout platoon or members of the mortar platoon who generally speaking were not being used in the way that they were intended or the way that they were designed to be used. And I, they would just stick me in with them because they were like, yeah, we need like a, we need a combo guy. Like we got to have a combo guy. Um, we don't know so, how to work the radios. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, you just need to like carry these batteries and make sure our radios work. So I ended up like, you know, being in a lot of, uh, you know, I ended up on patrol often um, I ended up, you know, in sector in central Baghdad at first after the initial invasion, you know, things were, were pretty calm, but then things started to heat up. IEDs became uh, more commonplace and, you know, people started getting killed again. And like here I was like kind of in the middle of it. And a lot of guys were, were really having a very difficult time with it. But like I really wasn't. And like, I got back and I was like, you know, if I'm, if I'm being honest, I kind of had. I kind of had a great time. Obviously, you know, how I was dealing with that in the private sector might have not been healthy, but like I wasn't like crying into a glass of whiskey or, you know, or, or had machinations of taking my own life or anything like that. I, it was the opposite. I was like, I got to figure out a way to do more of this. I was, I was good at that. I enjoyed that. And that's what, that's what led me to going to SFAS and, and uh, joining the special forces. Did you have to do a lot of work to get ready for SF? Yeah. And I, I started putting in the work when I was deployed to Iraq. I mean, like, you know, that that deployment for us lasted like between 13 and 15 months. If you if you count our time in Kuwait prior to the actual uh, us getting in country, us actually getting into Iraq. So, you know, it was like a very long deployment that like block leave or leave mid deployment was not a thing back then. So it was like it was like being in jail. And, you know, just like if you're in jail, you know, you spend the majority of your time like, you know, listening to music you know, eating gross food and just like working out a bunch, you know? Um, so I, I kind of started getting into fitness or started working out. And what's interesting is when I deployed or before I deployed, I'd like literally not finished going through puberty. Like I was like still like I was 20 years old. Like I turned 21 in Baghdad. I didn't even know my birthday had happened. Like cause it was, it was so crazy at the time. And I remember another kid had walked up to me like weeks after my birthday and he's like, Oh, it's my birthday. And I was like, Oh word. I was like, uh, like what's the date? And it was like May something. I was like, shit, man. I was like, it was my, it's like my birthday, like two and a half weeks ago. He's like, how old did you turn? And I was like, you know, 21, <laughs> you know? And he was like, Oh, well, you know, happy birthday. I was like, yeah, whatever. But you know, I literally, I gained like 30 pounds and grew an additional two inches. I used to have like a very soft, um, kind of flushed face when I was younger and I came back and I just like was a couple inches taller, 30 pounds heavier, like had a defined jawline. It was like literally, it was like a, you know, back in the day when like dudes would join the French Foreign Legion and like come back and have like a new fancy French name and cool 
French credentials and just like I left as a boy and came back as a man. That was like what happened. I, and I, it's funny because I know for a lot of people, they were probably like, oh my God, like the war really turned this, you know, it carved them out of wood. But I was like, in, in all honesty, I think like it was a hormonal thing. I think that's just like when I was like finishing up puberty was in my, my early 20s. So I, I left um, kind of this like soft ass sort of kid and came back kind of a, a, a hard ass man. But I had worked on my physical fitness a great deal starting then. And um, I kind of turned it into a hobby, which, of course, is it, it still is like it's a great passion of mine. Physical fitness is like the thing that I focus the majority of my uh, of my free time on. You know, if I have free time, I'm usually spending it in the gym. I remember spending my 21st birthday at Coaches on Bragg Boulevard. Oh, man. What great, a great, great place. Rest in peace. Oh, is Co- does Coaches not exist anymore? I don't know. Was it the Trophy House or something? What a great bar. Uh, I, yeah, I used, Matt DeVivo used to dominate the foosball table in that organization. That's the place where, <laughs> you know, like I think the I think the cops had a dragnet set outside that place at, towards the end of the month to hit their quotas for DUIs or something like that. There was there was no, you know there was no shortage of that at coaches. No, absolutely yeah. not. I, yeah, Keith and I, Keith and I used to dominate the foosball table. We'd take on anybody. Mm-hmm. And then like some shitty 80s movie, like these two old guys, these two guys in like their 40s or 50s, are like we've been playing foosball together for 20 years. We've been to nationals and we're like fucking stack the quarters, man. Yeah. And we <laughs> we lost like 7 out of 10 games to them. And they're like, "What are we doing here, man?" Yeah. What? Well, you guys were so good that it wasn't even fun to play you. Like, it wasn't something like if you were like, hey, you want to get a game? And I was like, yo, man, not in particular. I don't want to just sit here and be, and be, you know, uh, whipped on by you, for God's sakes. There's no fun in that. There's no sport in that. What an absolutely useless skill. Yeah, well. Totally. Anyway, it passed the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember we went to Sears school together, too. I remember rolling next to you completely butt naked in, in February getting sprayed with a hose. Yeah. Listen, uh, I don't know what the, is there a rating for this? Is this, is this, is this podcast rated E for everyone? Like NC 17? E for explicit. Okay. I'm going to tell a story about Matt DeVito. Okay. So, (laughs) so, you know, and I'm going to do my best here to, to ensure that I'm, I'm not violating, uh, you know, I'm not giving away TTPs or anything goofy like this, but you know, in Sears school, Essentially, they, you know, there's a portion where you're evading, which is like not so bad. It's just like essentially like a spicy camping trip. You know what I mean? It's just like a camping trip with no food and like nothing really to sleep in. Um, and you may or may not like find you. Yeah. And you, you may like or a big hide. It's like a big week long hide and go seek with no food. It's great. Yeah. And it, it was particularly cold when we went through. But before you go out, there's like an opportunity for to get a couple test repetitions of what it's going to be like when you actually enter the camp and they give you some practice reps. And like, I was in the getting the practice reps in with none other than Keith and, and Matt DeVivo. Like that, that was like, those were the guys that I was with. So like, you know, essentially they're getting us in there and they're, you know, showing us what it's going to be like to be interrogated. They beat you up a little bit and stuff like that. And I think at one point, like a guy had shown Matt DeVivo a picture of, of what was supposed to be the guy's daughter's. And it was like uh, essentially a snapshot of the women from my 600-pound life or whatever the equivalent was in 2005. <laughs> and Matt, like stone-cold, straight-faced, like looked the guy dead in the face and like that Matt DeVivo kind of way and just like very 
dryly, stoically goes, yes, they're very beautiful. I have many sons back at home or something like this. And they showed the same picture to me. And because it was like these morbidly obese women, I started immediately losing my mind. And the guy called me snake face and proceeded to beat the shit out of me. But yeah, I remember, I remember I was, I had a lot of tough talk. I was like, yeah, man, I'm gonna, like, when we get there, once we're in the camp, I'm going to be like singing Inya and all this kind of stuff. And it's going to be easy street. Like they're not, they, you know, they don't got no smoke for Ben Bun. Man, I changed my tune super fast. I got there. I kept my mouth shut. I didn't want any of what they had to give me. Um, but at one point in time, yes, me and Matt DeVivo were indeed rolling all over each other. And, at, you know, at, at one point they're, they're spraying you with this like hose. It's very cold. So the holes, it, it just equals immediate compliance. You know, anything they want you to do, I'm like, I'll do it. Just stop spraying me. But, you know, they would humiliate us and have us rolling all over each other naked and stuff like this. And I, I swear on everything that's holy, Matt you know, having no wherewithal for his buddies in this pit, you know, this nasty, grimy pit rolls over onto me. You know what I'm saying? And his gross penis literally flops <laughs> out right on my face. And I was like, why are you doing this to me? Like you could have just acted like you couldn't roll. You could have acted like you passed out or something. You know, you could have just been like, I'm too weak to roll. I can't. But no, it rolled right onto me. Mouth full of his genitals. Serious fool. That's it. Yeah. It'll it'll make you yeah. tough. Well, you know, you want to be a really – I think that's the one point where you go from everyone who shows up there to that point wants to be a really good soldier. Like we all – we try hard. We want to be the best. We want to do the right thing. And then you come away from there and you're like – you just have this criminal mind. Like maybe I shouldn't always do the right thing. Like, yeah. And you just like – you're you're like – uh, suspicious and paranoid of everything. And yeah. You stop telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. Like that was, that's probably the one course in the special forces qualification course that really gives you your first like bona fide taste of what it means to conduct unconventional warfare or what it means to operate in like an unconstrained environment, you know, cause a lot of times for members of special operations, green berets, and assorted, you know, members of special operations across the different service branches, you're a lot of times operating alone and, un- and unafraid. You'll, you'll be out at a Ford operating base, you know, with partnered forces, a team that's very small, anywhere from nine to 12 guys, and then a couple of extra jimmies that might be helping you with communications, intelligence, or maintenance. And you just have to, like, figure it out. And you're not always going to do so in a way that's doctrinal. You're not always going to do so in a way that seems black and white, very ethical, right? I mean, you, you got to have some flexible guidelines, but still do your best not to do anything that's, you know, immoral, you know, uh, not legal or, or unethical, right? This kind of triumvirate of moral, legal, ethical. It's, and it's difficult when you're in special operations because you're forced into these positions where you really have to walk a fine line. And, you know, the force has this expectation that you're going to be a good steward uh, to the regiment by walking that fine line, but not crossing it. I think there's been a lot of issues post global war on terror where you've seen guys who have been trained by individuals who have had multiple deployments and have walked the fine line in real life. But, you know, in a peacetime army, you know, these guys are, are taking the tools that they're being given during training and not always using them in a great way. And we've seen 
a little bit of issues with discipline, violence, drugs, and this kind of stuff in special operations over the past several years. So it looks like they're trying to tighten things up a little bit and make sure that the you know, the special operations community is still operating inside those guidelines, but still has the skill sets needed to survive when necessary. Yeah, I mean, I learned how to jack a car in the Q course. It yeah. wasn't so that I could go down to Fayetteville and start jacking cars. Yeah. It's so that if I ever had to, like, in, in an extreme situation, like, I could to save m- my life and others. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I know how to, I know how to fend off an attack dog. Like I know exactly, you know, how to dispense that animal. Right. I know how to defend against it. Right. I know how to evade, you know, it's, and they give you all these, these really uh, niche skills and then they kind of send you out into the world and you can spend a great deal of time just like running around knowing that it's best to pull the antenna off of a car and smash the window with it. You know, if you're dealing with a late model vehicle that still has an antenna on it. Oh, well, that's why that's why we're supposed to be good stewards. There you go. So what what was different about when you start deploying with SF from when you did beforehand? Just either the nature of the unit or just it's a couple of years later in the conflict. Uh, you know, it was a couple of years later in the conflict. And I knew particularly in the initial invasion. And then I went back, you know, less than a year later and spent the majority of my time in Sodder City in a place called Camp Hope, where there was in, like intense combat, intense fighting. I think at one point in time, like our, our FOB, it was called Camp Hope. I think they renamed it something later on down the road, but it was probably a quarter mile in length and maybe a quarter mile uh, across. Like at one point, like we took, we had gotten mortared with like, I think they hit us 71 times in one day, like dropped 71 shells on us, right? They had like welded a mortar tube to the back end of a truck and they would just back it up, drop a bunch uh, of mortar rounds on us and then drive off. And I took like, months before I think an Apache finally smoked them. But just like really intense and kind of out of control, things um, were still very expeditious in nature in theater. Like you would, you know, it, you know, you were kind of left to like fend for yourself. There wasn't a ton of infrastructure. There weren't these like mega chow halls and mega posts all over country or anything like this. So by the time I had gotten out of the Q course and deployed with SF, you know, things were different in that there was a little bit more structure. You know, I had never been able to leverage such a significant amount of assets for such a small amount of people. So I was really interested in, in the amount of support that we would, would receive when we would go on missions. So I thought that was really interesting. And it was just a different kind of fight. Like back in my first couple of deployments, I felt very reactionary. I felt like I was just waiting for something to happen to me. Um, whereas when I was in SF, like that was not the case. Like we would have intelligence we'd be able to case the locations where we thought those people lived. And like, you know, I was blowing in their fucking front door in the middle of the night. And typically speaking, I was in their bedroom with a gun pointed at them before they were even out of bed. They were like still wiping the sleep out of their eyes. So you're still in SF guard, right? So everybody on your team and correct me if I'm wrong, but like has a day job, you know, at that time, where the global war on terror was at, most of the individuals in the National Guard didn't have day jobs. They spent their entire time either on a deployment or in training. They called them guard bums. So if you were one of the guys that was just like consistently chasing deployments or training, you were like a guard bum. So you would have these weird two to three like two to three week intervals where you would just be like not doing anything, and you're like, yeah, I'm getting ready to go to like Broken Axle or getting ready to go to the Fox course. I'm getting ready to go to Sodic or Sephardic or whatever the case may be. And 
in the in-between time, you're just kind of hanging out, just like kind of waiting for the next deployment, whether it was Tyrak, Afghanistan, or Central and South America. They were still doing some limited deployments to those locations even then. So you could really, I mean, the operational tempo for some of the guys that were actually in the National Guard was more intense than people that were on active duty because active duty at least had a mechanism in place by which to establish, you know, a battle rhythm or a life cycle for their active duty soldiers or active duty special operations personnel. And they would say, hey, you deployed, you're going to have 18 months of dwell time, you know, built into that 18 months of dwell time, you're going to have six to nine months of pretty intensive training and then maybe like a month and a half of PMT. But other than that, like you're, you know, you're going to be at home with your families. But if you were a guard guy and you just had your mind about you that you just wanted to get it on, you would spend your entire time either in training um, or, or deployed. And that's kind of like what it was like for me for a very long time. Like I was constantly going to different schools, whether it was the 18 Fox course, SODIC 1, SODIC 2, you know, Sephardic, unit level Sephalic courses. So I was always in a shooting course. I was always at some course trying to like, you know, do new cool stuff. And if I wasn't in a course, it was like it was like a two or three week period before I was either off to the next thing or, or deploying again. And I kind of did that until around 2010. And I finally 2009, 2010, and finally decided to go back to school. Yeah. When did you start being a ROTC instructor? Is that did you was that at the same time that you were enrolled or how that happen? So I, you know, I was got I got my mind about me that I was either going to go on active duty full time or or figure out something in the private sector. And unbeknownst to me and a lot of other people that were in the military at that time, like 2008, 2009, you know, there was an economic crisis, but I was like oblivious to it. One, because I was like yeah. 26 and I was like, whatever, you know, what, what's, yeah. what's that? You know, like, you know, like <laughs> literally like eating a meatball sandwich, watching the news. I was like, what are they talking about? You know, like, like I think a, I just got a tax-free bonus yeah. like overseas or something. So yeah. Like, like well, I'm, I'm fucking good. Yeah. Like, oh, he's cheap right now. Yeah. Shit, I'll buy some stocks. Yeah. Right. Just like, like just a total goon had no idea what was going on. <laughs> but, um, but I, but I had, you know, was pooping around and I was, I had kind of, I had had a pretty rough deployment and I was starting to get the mindset that, you know, Hey, I needed, I needed to figure the guard bump thing wasn't working out for me. Like I was like, I don't have stability. Um, I was starting to, to, to show some pretty strong symptoms of significant post-traumatic stress that was causing some serious issues in my personal life. And it was, uh, you know, I was like, I got I to gotta change something about my lifestyle. And I was like, look, I'm, I'm either going to go all in and go active duty or I'm going to try and find work in the private sector and go back to school. So I knew that at that time, you know, there was no shortage of spots available for 18 foxes with combat experience. You know, I could go active duty at any given point in time. Nobody was going to say no to me. So I was like, you know what? I'll try, I'll try my hand in the private sector. Literally could not find a job anywhere, had the most difficult time ever. And then finally I applied to be an assistant instructor at the university of Tampa's ROTC program, small private university located here in Tampa along the Hillsborough County river that uh, feeds into the Bay, beautiful campus, historic campus. And um, I interviewed for the position, got it. Spent the majority of my time doing administrative work for the organization, and I met a gentleman by the name of Robert Proctor. He was uh, a professor of military science, a lieutenant colonel. He had just come back from taking a battalion at 4th RTB, spent the majority of his career in Ranger Battalion. He's one of the most influential leaders and men that I've ever met in my entire life. First man I ever looked up to in my entire life, 
I'm a product of a broken home. Boo-hoo, man, what a hard life. But, uh, you know, so never really spent a lot of time um, looking up to my own father or having significant father figures in my life. I had a stepfather who was pretty influential as well, but, you know, things didn't work out for him and my mom, unfortunately. So, you know, this was like the first, you know, man that I, I really respected a great deal. And he kind of was encouraging me at the time. He goes, you know, Ben, you know, you should just join ROTC. You should just become an officer. And I was like, dude, officers are disgusting. They don't do shit. I hate their guts. I'd rather die. Was, and he goes, you know, man, and he told me, he's like, you know, he's like, if you think you can do better, I'd, I'd love to see you try, you know? And he knew, like, that's how he got me. I was like, okay, all right. I was like, all right, I knew where the button was. Yeah, I was like, all right, asshole. And, like, literally the next semester, I went from essentially cadre with the program and transitioned as a cadet and joined as a sophomore. I had a significant amount of college credit from the Special Forces Qualification Course and this previous um, school that I had kind of picked up here and there. Joined as a sophomore and then, you know, spent the rest of my time just really immersed in the ROTC program. But really immersed in being a student, period. Like, I lived on campus. Like, I was an, I was a resident advisor. I was an RA. I, I helped start the student veteran organization on campus. I started a, a club affiliate CrossFit gym that operated on campus. So I was, like, super, super involved um, in campus. And I, I, I got to tell you, it was um, a really transformative experience for me because I you know, at that time, I'd been in a bit of an echo chamber as an active duty army guy in special operations. You know, I thought a certain kind of way. I hung out with a certain kind of people. And it really pushed me outside of my comfort zone. And I, I really learned a ton, you know, sp- spending those few years like living on campus, just being a full time student. It's probably one of the most valuable experiences in my life. I had a different experience. I lived in New York City. I had a job. I showed up to school. I was like, who are these people? Went to class and left. So, like, how did you find a way to relate to people there? And, like, without just being Van Wilder, you know? I mean, if you ask people, they'll tell you that I was, I was kind of like Van Wilder. Like, it's literally, I was like this 27-year-old guy, like, had a sleeve. You know, it was like, you know, running 400s on the track in a set of Ranger panties. I mean, I was, I was a complete outlier. But also, you know, I saw the college experience that some of the younger people were having. And I saw it as an instructor. And honestly, I was like really jealous of that. And I, I looking at it, I knew I had missed out. I was like, damn, man, like I, I missed out on having that experience. I, you know, I took a different path. You know, I was, I spent my entire young adult life either training for war or actively participating in it. And I was jealous. And I, I remember looking at it and I remember thinking to myself, I was like, you know what though? I, I could do this. You know, I'm going to live on campus. I'm going to dive in head first. And that's exactly what I did. And I got involved on campus. Like I was on like the student board of trustees. Like I was on the student board of conduct, ironically. So I just, I got involved and inserted myself in the process as as much as possible. And because of that, it it became a really like immersive experience for me. So, and I didn't work, you know, I think I like spent the first year I was in college, like legitimately on, on unemployment and also the post 9-11 GI bill and a stipend. So I, I really didn't have to work housing was taken care of for me because I was an RA. So I, I, I really kind of like set myself up in such a way that there was enough support for me, you know, I, but whether it be financial um, or otherwise. And then also, you know, I had, you know, my, my friends and family also supported the efforts a great deal. So, it, you know, I took a really deliberate approach to getting involved in college and having like a very traditional college experience and it, and it paid off because of that. 
What was the shift from being an ROTC instructor to an ROTC cadet? Because obviously as an instructor, they're looking up to you. You have combat experience. Shifting to a cadet, like you're, you know, no, no one pulls the veil over is like, this fucking guy's a cadet now. Yeah. Oh, it was actually pretty painful. Like personally and professionally, if I could go back in time, there's a, there's a few things that I would have done differently, you know, because in, in, in a lot of ways we're wearing our credentials right on our uniforms, you know, like. I had things that were highly sought after. You know, I had a CIB, you know, I had a set of airborne wings, I had a set of air assault wings, I had a long tap, I had a combat patch. I had multiple combat patches. I would show up different days wearing different combat patches from the different units I had deployed with, you know, it was so um and in some cases I had more combat experience and a, a larger well of knowledge than some of the instructors. But like the the fact of the matter is, is that didn't matter. Like, you know, you very much have to wear the hat you're given when you're given it in ROTC. And like my job there wasn't to be, you know, the smartest person in the room or the person with the most combat experience. My job there was to be a good cadet. And it took me a long time to figure out exactly what it meant to be a good cadet. And I tell you the, the very same guy that I looked up to a great deal, Rob Proctor, you know, me and him spent almost a year at odds with one another because I was using that innate leadership um, poorly, you know, I could have been showing other cadets be like, Hey, listen, you know, instead I was, I was explaining to them all the cool stuff. Hey, this is what it was like to be an SF. This is, you know, I put my hands in my pockets cause I've earned the right to and all this kind of stuff. And what I should have been doing was saying like, Hey guys, like you have to really, you have to display this kind of discipline for a significant amount of time before you can even be invited to participate with groups and organizations that are allowed to stick their hands in their pockets because they prove that they have the requisite discipline so that their hands are cold. They can just jam them in their pockets, like this kind of stuff. Like I should have been using my experience to mentor other people. And it took me about a year and a half of participating in the program before I finally figured that out. Um, and, and, and Colonel Proctor, I think, spent a little bit of time pretty disappointed with me. And his uh, disappointment in me is, is probably what motivated me to the most to turn it around. And by the time I got to my senior year, I was a real team player and I did my best to kind of enrich the experience for the cadets that I was with and, and just like make them as good as they could be. So that like when they finally did, you know, have to pass through the barriers to entry that exist in that program in order to go off into the big army and do well, they were prepared more so prepared than other cadets might be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ben, a little, uh, insider and or maybe some context in the army your uniform has pockets on it but you're not supposed to put your hands in your pockets even though they're right where all your other pants pockets are which is something that i had even forgot now like it's been so long but if you are in like special operations you may not even be wearing like an actual army uniform. But if you are, you wouldn't think twice about just jamming your hands in your pockets and to, to, to big army people or, you know, this probably causes drill sergeants to lose sleep. Like it's, it's just considered, um, you know, sloppy looking. It's it's one of those things that I can, I, I could never understand. I could spend 50 years in the army and, and wouldn't understand it. Anyway. Well, that's some self-discipline, right? Like you, you want to put your hands in your pockets if they're cold. So, yeah, you're just not supposed to. You just keep them out of the pockets. And I remember it was like, it's like we're like once 
and like when you're in the Q course, when you're in the special forces qualification course, you know, you're like, you like dream of the day that you graduate so that you can, you can jam your hands in your pockets. You're like, once, once we're in group, we just put our hands in our pockets anytime we want, you know, we'll be living the high life <laughs> hands and pockets, <laughs> true, true freedom, hands and pockets. Oh man. That's the small things in life. Yeah. When you had that experience in ROTC where you kind of weren't doing the right thing. You realized that you corrected course. Do you think that helped you be a better leader as an officer? Oh my once God. You, once you actually got to your unit? Yes. Yeah. And having, having that revelation, like I wish I would have, I wish I would have known that when I was on team, I would have been a better team member when I was, when I was in the special forces. But yeah, you know, I, I carried that, that same attitude with me as a, as a junior officer in the army. I carried that with me into every position that I uh, held after that, you know, so, you know, I had the opportunity to, you know, be in the 173rd, um, which is a, a airborne infantry unit. It's considered a premier airborne infantry unit that's in Vincenza, Italy, you know, had the opportunity to be both a, a line PL and infantry platoon leader, and then also the mortar platoon leader and also held some various staff positions. And it was, uh, it was a really great experience and, and being able to take, you know, that mindset of doing anything I could to make the unit better and to make my subordinates better, to make my peers better, you know, and to make sure that I was meeting my commander's intent with the understanding that their intent is inherently nested and ensuring that the welfare of everybody is number one. Really, it served me very well as a junior officer. And I had a great experience as a junior officer, great experience as a PL you know, did very well, you know, received very high marks. And generally speaking, had, had a great time. It's probably, probably one of the best times in my life and in the Army was as uh, an infantry platoon leader. And they talk about it all the time. Like you hear people, you know, particularly commissioned officers, like, what was your favorite job? And they're like, yo, I loved being a PL. It's the best thing I ever did. And to this day, even though I like had super cool jobs, like very kinetic, you know, like SF guy, like, you know, landing on the objective in a helicopter and blowing up gates and all these like cool things that, you know, I think ever for a lot of people, that's like what they would consider the pinnacle of their career. But for me, the thing that I, I, I enjoyed most was leading young men with guns. It's like, I, I loved it more than anything else. I've never had a job that was better. How much of your identity as an enlisted green beret did you keep with you because maybe it helped or did you just set aside and say, Hey, I'm on to this new phase? No, you can't escape it. Particularly in a, in a unit like the 173rd, a lot of um, captains and above had probably more than, had more than likely tried their hand at selection and not made it. Um, and that's, and they landed in the 173rd. So it caused, um, it caused a little bit of friction because, you know, I would walk around with a daily reminder of some other guy's failure, you know, like they'd be like, there goes Bun. He was just like, dude was a green beret. And like, oh, by the way, his last appointment, like him and his platoon, like maneuvered and destroyed the enemy. You know, like we, like we weren't fooling around as a platoon when we were downrange. And like we, my platoon definitely had a reputation for like finishing things. And, um, you know, it, people were very much like that's that's the PL that's got a long tab, and commanders knew about it. And um, you know, I, I had a reputation that probably preceded me. And it's it's a weird thing, you know, in the military, you wear your resume on your uniforms in a, in a lot of cases. And um, I had to work hard to ensure 
that a lot of my commanders and peers didn't kind of hold me to some weird standard or some weird idea about that they might have had about the special forces, whether it was because they went to selection and failed or had worked with partnered units or partnered special operation units on a previous deployment or just had like seen some weird shit on the movies. You know what I mean? Like I, I very much would have to like essentially deal with whatever preconceived notions they had about individuals that hailed from special operations and, you know, essentially prove to them like, Hey, I'm on board with doing like airfield seizures and running squad life fires. Like I'm still about that life too, but just understand I'm bringing a backlog of additional knowledge with me that may or may not be valuable. And you have privates now too, because in special forces, you're on a team with a bunch of other non-commissioned officers, kind of, uh, a little more life experience, professional soldiers. Now you have all the way down to privates. But in special forces, you have like indigenous forces too. Yeah. That you're leading. That's kind of what they were like. Dealing with privates was like kind of dealing with like some Afghani partnered soldier, you know, who's like washing his feet in the bathroom sink or something like that. Like, you know, like you're like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. But like also <laughs> I could very much like walk up on a private, you know, and he's like brushing his teeth out of a Mountain Dew cup in the morning. And I'm just like, yo, Johnson, like, I don't know what you're doing, but this isn't, this isn't how you conduct hygiene, bro. You're a mess. You know what I mean? But uh, I think for me, what was very interesting is my line platoon. I very much ran that almost like a team. Like I would, I called my squad leaders by their first names and then had very close relationships with them. And I had very close relationships with my team leaders, but like the privates, like there was a general understanding that they necess- they wouldn't necessarily approach me or speak to me unless there was like a very good reason, you know? And like on occasion, like a, a private would walk up to me with something weird, like, Hey sir, uh, you know, I don't understand why we're doing this today. You know, what's the deal with X, Y, Z. And I'd be like, I'd be like, Johnson, that's a great question. I was like, I want you to go get your team leader and then go get your squad leader, tell them to get into PTs and to bring a water source And then you guys can come on back and we're going to have a good discussion about the whole thing. Right. And like you do that like once or twice and like it, it becomes very evident, like what the pecking order is and who should be talking to me and when, and that's kind of how I managed that. But I had like very close relationships with my squad leaders, very close relationships with my team leaders and made sure that they understood that I trusted them implicitly to do what needed to be done. But, you know, would also bring them in occasionally and be like, Hey, listen, have you thought about doing things this way? hey, you know, I'd like to interject my thoughts on this and kind of would get them back on rails to make sure that we were all kind of, you know, meeting my intent and the intent of my commanders. And your platoon sergeant, too, you had already been a sergeant first class. So is that is that a pill to swallow for him? How do you now, you know, how do you approach that? Well, the guy, so the guy that I was in combat with, or the guy that I had, uh, when I had a line company and was in Afghanistan was a gentleman named Jose Torres, David Torres. And he was, our relationship was perfect. I mean, like at the time he was straight up my best friend. I slept next to him every night, you know, ate breakfast with him every morning, you know, like we were like best buds. We were like the same age, you know, and, uh, and, to this day, you know, I, I still love him to death. But like after the fact, after we got back from Iraq or excuse me, Afghanistan and um, later on, um, you know, he moved to a different platoon and I got a new platoon sergeant who was like, you know, had never been an infantry platoon sergeant and like had been out of it for a while. So I hadn't had any recent or relevant squad leader time. 
that was a challenge, you know, essentially. And this guy was a little bit older than me. And then later on, I, I had a, a mortar platoon sergeant who was like had been a mortar guy his entire life. And they're kind of an odd bunch in the first place. And he had severe disdain for officers. And uh, so, you know, it was challenging to, you know, have individuals that would normally, it was very easy for them to be dismissive of officers, particularly junior officers, because they probably didn't have a lot of experience. But like, you know, the same argument that they would make for those junior leaders, like, hey, I've, I've got socks that got more time in country than you have in the army, or, you know, I've got you know, more jumps than you've got ribbon, you know, whatever, all this stuff. I'd be like, no, you don't. Like I have more time in combat than you. I've got more jumps than you. I have more time in the military than you. Like anything you're getting ready to say is no. But at, at the same time, you as a leader, you have to give your subordinates and your peers an opportunity to screw up on their own. And if you don't, they'll hold it against you. And I'd much rather watch somebody fail and then together, you know, figure out a path forward, then, you know, never give them the opportunity to fail in the first place. And, and honestly, they'll hold that against you in a big way. What they won't hold against you is you pull them out of the fire. They'll definitely hold it against you if, if you never give them an opportunity to get burned in the first place. That's uh, it's pretty insightful. You see like a kid struggling with a task, you kind of have to let them do it. Yeah. One and, or two times. Yeah. And I watched that. I mean, I have a toddler now. I have a son now and uh, I watch him go through it daily. And there's occasions where I'm like watching him do something. I'm like, man, that's, that's going to bite you in the ass brother. You know, but I just like, I got to let him go down that path because he's going to learn better. If I, if I, if I pull him out of the situation, he's just going to be pissed off at me and not understand why I pulled him out in the first place. So when able, I, I let him screw up all on his own. Hey everyone, time for this episode's intermission. We'll keep it short and sweet. If you're not following us on Instagram or Twitter, please go do that at Thank You Now What. You'll see show updates, audiogram content, and you can follow us, follow more of our prior guests, and see what they're up to. You can still find everything else about us at thankyounowwhat.com. We have our entire backlog of episodes with uh, descriptions for you to go back and listen. We also have a contact form. If you have any feedback for the show, you can also email us directly at thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. If you're on our website and you like what we're doing here enough that you want to contribute to the show, you'll see some links for PayPal or Patreon. Uh, Patreon subscription starts at just a dollar per episode. Click the link or head to patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat to see more. Please know that when you share with us in the cost of doing business through PayPal or Patreon, whatever doesn't go straight to production cost gets redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans. And a very sincere thank you to those listeners who do take part. We're very humbled uh, that you enjoy the show enough to do so. If you're in search of some show swag, head over to the website again, thankyounowwhat.com, and click the merchandise link. Uh, You'll get to see our very cool and subtle show design done by our buddy Chris Lang at Southern Northern. Uh, So go check that out. We've got a few colors. Of course, I went for the Army Green. Uh, It looks good. It feels great. Uh, Go check it out. We also appreciate any reviews that you can give us on your favorite podcast player, even if it's just the star rating. Finally, if you do nothing else, please go ahead and tell somebody else about the show so we can get that word of mouth spreading. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode.
there's this idea of it's not if it ends, but when it ends. So how do you get to the point where you're determining that your time is up? When do you start thinking about it? So I, I started thinking about it as I was transitioning away from Italy um, and knew that I was either going to be going back to the Special Forces Qualification Course or back off into the big army. And you said something that's really interesting, not a lot of, not a lot of active duty personnel think about. It's not a matter of if it's going to win. It's when it's, when it's going to end. Like, when is this actually going to end? And I think a lot of guys don't think about that. I think a lot of, like, hey, this, this adventure is going to be over no matter what. You are only going to get so much time. Uncle Sam's only going to allot you so much time to participate in this rodeo. And, you know, the lights are going to come on. Last call is going to go out. And you're going to have to walk out of the bar eventually. So, you know, I, I had opportunity um, as I was leaving uh, Italy, you know, where I had to make a decision about either going off to the career course or going off to the special forces qualification course or, you know, again, as an officer. Yeah. Or I could, you know, I, I could transition now. You know, I, I had the opportunity at 16 years in there that, you know, early retirement was an option and I took it. And at the time it was it was it was a terrifying decision for me to make. I want to say I was like 33 years old. So I wasn't so old as to be uncomfortable in the workplace. Like nobody wants to, you know, nobody wants to hire a 39 year old, you know, fresh out of the military. I was still young enough that I could start another career and still, you know, be spry. Like it didn't look like I was just some old guy moon pretending to be a private sector employee of some variety. Like they're like this guy legitimately can, can go into the private sector and have legs doing something. And I had, um, machinations to to start a CrossFit gym. I'd run a CrossFit club affiliate when I was in college. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, holy shit, like I could I could do this in the real world. Like I could go start my own business. And no joke, as I, you know, as I was still in Italy, I started making plans to open up a CrossFit gym in my hometown of Tampa, Florida, and continued with those plans as I was transitioning out. I was stationed at in uh, Columbus, Georgia at Fort Benning. And probably spent about a year and a half there before I finally got out. And I spent that entire time, like, I mean, really, really taking a deliberate approach to how I was going to open up a CrossFit gym, you know. And during this time, I had continued to maintain uh, coaching positions at whatever gym I could find, whether it was the gym on post in Italy or, you know, CrossFit gyms that were located in Columbus, Georgia, dropping into as many gyms as I could and really picking the brains of the owners and general managers to see how they ran the business and just doing as much like research as I could, bought books on how to build a business plan, you know, had a big like 12 foot long whiteboard that I hung up like in my, my studio apartment in Columbus where I constantly had like goofy booger notes, started creating business plans online, you know, scouted out a business partner, somebody that could help me with the endeavor. Um, and just like really, really, I mean, I ran it like I was running a startup and it was funded similarly uh, at a micro level, obviously. But, you know, when we opened up uh, the gym in Tampa, I mean, I think we probably spent in upwards of like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And that was our only job. Me and my business partner at the time was was running the gym. And I think for a lot of people, they start small. You know, they're like, hey, I'm going to just run a couple clients out of my garage and it'll just kind of be this like little club thing. And then it grows into something larger and they maintain like a side hustle as a firefighter or some shit like this while they're, while the gym continues to grow and get larger. It's not how it is. I mean, we opened up in a 15,000 square foot facility where I had not lived previously. Like no joke. I, 
I, you know, got out March 31st, um, 2016. I opened my gym on April 3rd, 72 hours later, right? Like I had, had the grand opening in my hometown of Tampa, Florida, where I had not lived for like seven years or something bonkers like that. So it was, it was a gamble. If someone said, Matt, who's the first person you ever heard of doing CrossFit? It's actually you. Is it really? Yeah. God damn. I'm not even that good at it, to be honest. But I've, I've <laughs> well, like for me, I never played organized sports. And like, I remember in the Q course, like guys like you, Tom McCluskey and all these other guys, you know, they like played hockey and sports and were just like naturally, you know, they just sat, or not naturally, they just done strength and conditioning, had participated in team sports. Throw a ball. Yeah, they knew how to th- – okay, so we still remember that I can't throw a ball. Great. Um, but, like, you know, they you know they were athletic. And, like, for me, I had no athletic background prior to being in the military, and particularly as I was training to be in the Special Forces. And then once I was there and realized how fit everybody was, like, it was really challenging for me to keep up with everybody else. And I gravitated towards CrossFit because it was like at the time the only open source strength and conditioning program that gave me the kind of results that gave me the ability to hang with everybody else that I was holding court with at the time. Was there like, cause I know there's a huge cross culture military CrossFit now. Is this like before that or just in the like very first stage of that? Well, I think CrossFit as a methodology really stood out to people like first responders, LEO, and members of the military because it blended strength and conditioning, traditional strength and conditioning programs with high intensity or what was perceived as a little bit more austere workouts. Like if you were ever going to like look somebody dead in their face back in the day, and be like, I'm gonna go run a couple miles, I'm gonna do a couple hundred pull-ups. They would be like, Are you training to be a Navy SEAL? But now if you say that, they'd be like they'd be like, Are you training to be a Navy SEAL? Or do you like are you just a member of some like goofy ass CrossFit gym? You know? Because you will encounter that type of exercise in both those environments. But back then that was that was not commonplace. And CrossFit gyms were not as or CrossFit in general was not as prevalent as it is now. So I think like military first responders um, and LEO like really gravitated towards the program because it it looked a lot like the training programs that usually covered the more formative years of their career as they were training to be you know a SWAT officer or training to be a Green Beret or you know training to be a flight line medic or whatever the case may be. So CrossFit was a real natural fit for those communities, but it of course has expanded outwards and is a little bit more accessible to the public at large. In the same way that like having David Goggins yell at your ass about something is also a lot more accessible now than it was like 10 years ago. I didn't even get into working out until I was in my early 20s. I think it was either right at the tail end of the Q course or when I got to my first team and it was just that culture of working out. But when I was in the Army, it was you know, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and running. Yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> like, yeah, that was it. And they like you can show up hungover and they're like, All right, we're gonna we're gonna do six miles at a seven minute pace and you're like, Yeah, okay, cool. And like and then just go go wolf down a bunch of nasty like sausage and egg from the <laughs> uh from the cafeteria afterwards and drink a bunch of monsters and sit through classes and like it was good. And then and then I got to a team and it was like you know, uh, muscle and fitness type workouts. It's like, I got to do five sets of curls. And it's like, why, why, why am I doing that again? 
And like you said, like I, I just like doing sports, man. I like you know playing hockey, being outside, competing, that type of stuff. But I think we have we all have our own kind of fitness journeys. Yeah, I think right now, right now I do Peloton and stretchy bands because I've been locked in my uh, New York apartment for a year. Yo, it's the Wild West down here in Florida. It's like nothing even happened. That's probably <laughs> a, a different topic altogether. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I remember feeling like a real turd when I took like my first couple PT tests and being terrible at it. And like, you know, I couldn't run fast. I couldn't do a lot of pushups. I couldn't do a lot of sit-ups. And I remember feeling gross about that. And as I deployed a couple times, I remember like seeing the writing on the wall that if like you weren't physically capable, it was detrimental in combat in a combat environment. You know, like if you're a great big fat body, you're a detriment to everybody around you. You know, it's not just a matter of you not being able to survive a firefight. It's also just like day to day stuff like, you know, just, you know, the the austere type of living situations that you'll encounter don't bode well for somebody that's morbidly obese or unable to walk up a flight of stairs without getting winded. And I kind of saw that and I was like, yo, I've got to make changes like I can't be I can't be the weakest link, you know, and I got really into fitness in that way. And it was in the Q course is when I started getting really into CrossFit and it just stuck. And I think it was also when I went to college, it didn't have the structure of, you know, whatever training environment or deployment that I was in at the time. Like I gravitated towards, you know, CrossFit.com because it just gave me a moment to pause in the middle of my day and just like work on myself for like an hour or so. And um, I, that's when I really, really got into it. I, I went to my first CrossFit Level 1 seminar in 2008 when I had first taken on a position with the ROTC program there at the University of Tampa. And like after that, I just like, I was bought in. I was drinking their Kool-Aid hard after that seminar. Yeah. Never really looked back. I try to ask people about this who start their own business, but what's the balance between doing the thing that it is and running the business? Man, very difficult to strike that balance. I think a lot of people start their own businesses because they find something that they're truly passionate about and want to monetize it. Why wouldn't you, right? Like, I mean, if you are spending all this time doing macrame or, you know, baking cookies or lifting weights, you would love to figure out a way to stick a price tag on that and just do what you love for a living. But the fact of the matter is, is once you're doing the thing that you're passionate about, once you monetize it, it does pull away from, you know, that, that feeling like the, the what the same, the same activity that used to make you feel very f fulfilled in a lot of ways now can be a source of stress or anxiety because it's monetized and you have very real um, performance goals associated with it. Like, so whereas before I just wanted to create an, an environment where I was just like working out with a bunch of cool people and I very much did that. But then I was like, Oh shit, not only am I working out with these cool people, but I also have to deliver and satiate their need for customer service because I'm running a business and I am taking money from them, you know? We're participating in the economy with one another. I'm delivering this thing. In exchange, they're giving me American monies. So I have to really systemize the way by which I deliver all these things that I said I was going to deliver to them and ensure that I can do so in a consistent manner day over day, month over month, year over year. And that's that's been difficult. And it's, it's hard sometimes for me to walk into the gym um, and not see it as a workplace, but see it as what it is for everybody else, which is like this big playground where everybody has fun and, you know, you know, hits 
new personal goals and they lose weight and make new friends. But like from my perspective, a lot of times I'm just like, God damn, this is just like, this is just some place I work. Right. Or it's a place where I have to manage relationships. But every now and again, like I'll be, I'll get lost in it. And, you know, I like look around and I see smiling faces and people breaking a sweat and, you know, and I just like take it all in and I'm like, damn, man, this is like a really cool place. And it, it still does represent this thing that I, I first came to know and love. But, you know, it, there's a there's an ebb and flow. You know, some days, you know, I'm just as enamored as I was the first time I went to my CrossFit level one studio. And then other days, the place just feels like work, you know. What's the thing that you had to learn the hardest about small business ownership? Um, probably finding finding a way to manage your relationship, not only with your employees, but also your customers. And CrossFit is unique in that you are dependent upon repeat customers and you're dependent on creating employees that are going to be with the organization for a long time. It's not like Starbucks. You know, you for, for sure, I'm, I'm certain that Starbucks has employees that stick around with them for years. And I'm sure Starbucks has people that frequent the exact same shop multiple times a week. But I bet that's not the norm. And even if it is, that general manager probably still maintains a transactional relationship with their employees. And those employees for sure maintain a transactional relationship with the person that's just coming in for their venti white mocha or whatever the fuck. But that's not how it is at a CrossFit gym. Not only am I seeing these people multiple times a week, but I know personal things about their lives. In some cases, a lot of them have become like some of my best friends and I'm still maintaining a relationship where I'm taking their money in exchange for services. And that has been very difficult um, to balance because occasionally I have to make professional decisions on their behalf or on the behalf of my staff. And I have to push off to the side the fact that they're a friend, right? And it could be something as simple as telling them they can't park in a certain spot because it'll get us fined with, with Hillsborough County. Or it might just be like, hey, you said something inappropriate to somebody on the floor the other day. And like, you can't talk that way anymore and still be here. And it's like somebody that I, I know and care about. And it's also difficult to manage, you know, employees outside of the military, you know, because in the military, I had legal authority. You know, if I told you to do something, you fucking had to do it. You know, like there's a lawful order, dude. You're breaking the law if you don't do what I tell you to do. But like nobody's breaking the law if they don't do what I tell them to do. I have to incentivize them through love of the organization and through compensation that is commiserate with what they're doing. And that's that's been a challenge. But I think I've. I've, I've struck balance. And I think I finally have cracked the code. It took me about three and a half, four years, but like the last year and a half, I have found a great relationship with the majority of my employees. I've also had to cut a couple of them loose, which was painful, but I've also for sure struck a, a great balance with, uh, with my athletes, my customers as well. So I've been able to figure it out, but it's very challenging. You said you started with a business partner. How has, how has that gone? Have you expanded your, uh, your ownership structure? Have you kept it consistent? What's that relationship like? So, you know, I, I had a good friend that I went to college with. He was a guy that I was an RA with, a really, really interesting guy. His name's Mike Verdi. And um, he, after he graduated, went on to go work in the tech industry. He was out on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, like worked for New Relic and a couple other like, uh, you know, really like large scale, like data management type organizations, software development organizations, worked for a couple startups. And it just is like an interesting guy in general. He was a collegiate swimmer. 
he was so competitive that he, you know, he almost got an invite to the Olympics at one point for, for the Panamanian Olympic team because he was born in Panama and technically had like Panamanian citizenship. And I actually think qualified to be in the Olympics for Panama, just like a really interesting dude, but he had a great startup experience and he had some professional acumen uh, as a result of him working in Silicon Valley that he brought to the table that was absolutely game changing for us. And, and you can, there's a lot of things you can say about my organization, my gym, but the way in that it's systemized, the way that we onboard new coaches, the way that we operate in terms of just general professionalism is absolutely unmatched. As a matter of fact, I've just never ran into another CrossFit gym in person that operates as professionally as we do. And that's, that's because of Michael mostly. He, you know, and he really took me under his wing in a lot of the same ways that I took him under my wing and that I was like, you know, this guy that had been evangelizing on behalf of the brand of CrossFit for years and just, I'm convincing, I'm a good salesman. And that those, those are skills and things that Mike wasn't necessarily a natural possession of, but you know, he taught me a lot about what it's like to run a professional organization, specifically startups. And uh, I taught him a lot about what it means to, you know, run a community driven organization. But around the three year mark, um, we both realized that if uh, if one of us bought out the other one, that we would be making six figures, you know, we, we would have like a really awesome salary. And, um, you know, we weren't really sure who was going to buy out who, but, you know, Tampa was my hometown, you know, opening up a CrossFit gym had been something that I had kind of dreamt about for a long time. So Mike kind of uh, conceded and, uh, and he let me buy him out. Got an SBA loan, which is also a very unique and interesting process, fucking something that's interesting to navigate on your own. And uh, I bought him out and uh, he now is working in the tech industry again and has like an absolutely killer job. He's like, you know, dating a cardiac surgeon, just crushing it and doing, doing good stuff up in D.C. We're still great friends to this day. Are you opening your second location now or did you already? No. So right now I'm working through the um, SBA lending process. And what I want to do for my, for my next facility, it's going to be a CrossFit gym. It's going to be a little less traditional. It's going to be like more boutique style, kind of more geared towards like personal training, individualized design and specialty programming, this kind of stuff, uh, like intermediate athletes, athletes as opposed to uh, beginner athletes. It'll still operate under the same legal umbrella, but, and it'll still be in the same town. But right now we're going through the lending process because I want to, I want to own the next facility. I'm really sick of paying people rent. I'm really not about that life anymore. So I'm going to buy the commercial real estate and then be an owner occupied, uh, organization. Have you been to TB 12? No, I haven't been to TB 12. Um, I'd like to see what they're all about. No, I haven't. I, uh, I visited their place in Boston, actually Kevin Flake, who is also on the show, uh, reached out to me and Green Bray Foundation was partnering with them to kind of like, uh, um, do some intro sessions. It was in, it was interesting. Um, Matt, what's TB12? TB12 is like Tom Brady's fitness brand where uh, you don't use weights. You just use like stretchy bands and someone massages you all day long. But uh, it's it, it was interesting. I just didn't know if you had any because he's in Tampa now, you know. Yeah. At, it would be uh, it'd be impossible not to know that, but you would um, you would think I would have you would have seen like a bunch of TB12 gyms opening up all over the place, but I like we just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, they're pretty. I think they're pretty expensive, and they obviously the the only the highest clientele. But yeah, I think like a similar so, model is like Performance House up in uh, New York City. I think it was like a yeah. real similar type gym. They just got like a bunch of 
high profile trainers doing weird karate and shit and throwing balls and stuff or whatever. <laughs> their uh, their locker room looks exactly like Equinox, which uh, I you know belonged to Equinox at some point when I was here in the city, oh. and it's you know so so bougie and and then they have like the Equinox E Club where there's only like a hundred members. And, yeah. They're into that whole, and there's like Keel's lotion in the bathroom, you know, with like ar- oh, yeah. with like argan oil and shit in it. Yeah, Equinox, yeah. Is, that's the place, man. You just go in there and feel like royalty, man. I love that. Oh yeah, I had a, I had a one. I was I was spending way too much on a gym, but I had like the private locker room with no shit, like the eyeball scanner to get in, which I think is probably just. It's probably just like a face scanner, but they tell you it's an eyeball scanner, so you feel that that much better about it. Did like you a, have like your own your own locker where they do your laundry for you when you leave and they put it back in your locker. It's ridiculous. Did, I mean, did it for the eye scanner? I don't want to get hung up on the eye scanner, but I think it's worth us talking about right now. Did like a green okay. light come down and like scan your entire face like you were on Tron or or Blade Runner or some no, shit? No, it's like a it's kind of like a red bar. You kind of like look down at this thing and it's like a, you know, black plastic with like a red bar inside and it just goes like, like your iPhone sound and then the door unlocks. And it's like, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to get people to pay that much for a gym membership, give them a fucking eye scanner because they'll love it. You know, I know that eye scanner is not real. I know it. We all know it. <laughs> it's someone. It's someone watching CCTV at the front desk yeah. and be like, "Oh shit, someone's looking in the eye scanner. Let them in." Yeah, for sure. Button. There's like a guy. They're like, "His name tag says eye scanner." That's the actual eye scanner. It's just some guy getting yeah. paid fifteen dollars an hour to zap somebody in, you know. But that being said, I mean that's a that's got to be a formative experience. You know, you've made it. You know, you're just like you're showing up to an Equinox. You drinking some cold pressed juice with like some ginger and turmeric in it. Bunch of spice. Talking to my broker on the phone as I walk in, yeah. being an asshole. Yeah, man, yeah. just like yelling at somebody, telling them that they need to fix this before you're done. You know, by the time yeah. I get out of the gym, this better be fixed. I need an updated deck, and then just like getting your eyeball scanned by some fake scanner. That's the life. I'm telling you right now. Opulence. God oh, bless the American dream. God, New York man, fit in. Um, what at what time do you? have enough time to do things other than the gym so you know i i finally got to the point where i had uh, so when i bought out my business partner i you know the first thing that i had to do was get uh so back in the day it was just me and my business partner and we took care of everything and i quickly found out that you know the the duties and responsibilities associated with what mike and i had handled between the two of us were too much for me to handle on my own so I started changing up how I ran my staff and I started delegating more professional responsibilities, administrative tasks and these kind of things. And then also because we had freed up additional revenue um, without Mike being around, I could also pay him a lot better. So, you know, at my gym, I have multiple coaches that have extremely survivable lifestyles. You know, it's most coaches are getting paid like 12 bucks an hour or like $12 a class or something goofy like that you know, and they're maintaining some side job. Meanwhile, I have like five, no shit, full-time employees at my gym. And uh, a couple of them actually get owner space. So like depending on the level of responsibility or if they have strategic impact inside the organization, then I give them the opportunity to negotiate owner's pay where they get essentially a percentage of total deposits at the end of every single month, right? So like my owner's pay is essentially 20% 
of total deposits that have been made in the gym. You know, the other 80% is accounted for in a bunch of different ways. Some of it goes to overhead, some of it goes to pay taxes at the end of the year, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, the rest goes either to just like hang out in a money market account or is applied to the various systems, rents, utilities, this kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, I gave my, my coaches, I, you know, I, I, I tell everybody in the organization that we have, a, you know, executive lifestyle. You have the opportunity to eat what you kill. So, you know, if they seek out personal training clients, clients that they do personalized programming for, nutrition clients, all this kind of stuff, they take home 44% of those revenues. And then the additional revenues are split up in such a way that we can cover overhead, taxes, operating expenses, this kind of stuff. So I provide a lot of opportunity for my coaches to make great money. And then I also, you know, that gives me the opportunity to hand off a lot of professional tasks that normally would only be executed by the singular owner, general manager, whatever the case may be. So that freed up a lot of my time. And I use that time to kind of parlay into doing various consulting work for affinity brands, veteran transition organizations, nonprofits, this kind of stuff. Um, around that same time, generally speaking, my, my social media presence started to grow. I'm probably, I guess, what is considered a micro-influencer. I've got, you know, just uh, south of 20,000 followers, but very high engagement from those followers. But, uh, you know, and, and, you know I, I'm a known quantity, both in the CrossFit community and in the veteran transition community. And I kind of used those tailwinds to, to kind of pivot into my full-time job, which, you know, is now the director of sales at uh, Bravo Sierra. You touched on a bunch of things there. So do you measure your influence in terms of social media or is it just a byproduct of you being you? Man, I don't know. I actually haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that in that way. I so Well, I would guess, you know, I guess there are some people out there that are like running the numbers. Right? Yeah. They're they're kind of saying like, well, what's my what's my engagement to followership and how much should I be, you know, charging if I was going to plug this thing or what opportunity or like they can get deep in the analytics of it. I I imagine we have a couple fewer uh followers than you uh, as you might see on our show page. Yeah. But uh, it's all right. It's growing. I just want to know. Yeah, I want to know because you know, I'm sure some people it's just it's intrinsic, and some people it's engineered. Yeah. So if as so if on a regular basis you have three to five percent of your followers actively watching your stories, commenting and liking your posts, then you're performing above average, right? Hmm. For me, it's roughly eighteen percent. Eighteen percent of the people who follow me like comments will swipe up this kind of stuff. That's, that's a pretty unusual percentage um, in terms of like the amount of like how powerful your voice is with your followership. And I think the reason is, is I, I don't spend a lot of time evangelizing for other brands. I don't spend a lot of time telling people to swipe up and buy goofy fit tees or ketone powders or any of this stupid shit. Um, the majority of the time I'm just like really espousing whatever is going like, I use Instagram as a storytelling tool, right? I'm like, this is a great tool to capture the ephemeral, you know, portions of my life that I think are like funny or captivating that normally I wouldn't get to share with other people. And they're also like, it's very authentic. Like, I think a lot of people are probably shocked when they meet me in person. They're like, yo, you are exactly the way you are on social media. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that. I know that's not always the case. I know for a lot of people, 
you know, social media is kind of like this highlight reel, but for me, it's just like literally what you see is what you get. Um, and I think that's bode, that's done, it's done very well for me, right? To have this, like this personality that's authentic. I think it also limits my growth. I'm only going to get, you know, so big because I'm only going to want to involve myself with certain brands, certain organizations. So it's like, I'm not always going to be caught up in the next fad, but you know, when there's something that I'm passionate about or, you know, there's something that I want to talk about on social, I, I take the opportunity to, to talk about it in an authentic way. And I think that's, it's paid off for me in the long run and that I have a very avid following, but you know, it's, it's smaller, you know, it's mid-sized, but it's potent. You said that between you and your co-founder, you brought to the table the ability to basically build a community. Yep. And then you, you do that uh, for a number of years. And then you said the type of consulting that you did was in affinity brands. And then you mentioned Bravo Sierra, which, you know, it's an affinity CPG brand. Yep. So has this, and like, dude, I've known you since... 2005, I think, um, you have a natural ability to, you know, you have a, you have a a social gravity, right? Did you lean into this or have you just kind of been able to do what you want? I have been able to do what I want until recently. I'm an excellent salesperson. I'm super convincing. Right. And my sister, my sister will tell you, she's like, you used to just use that, uh, you know, to, to sleep with heathens, to get chicks. That's like literally what I, what I used it for. Right. Like I didn't know it for like a long time, but you know, um, I'm, you know, I'm not proud, but I'm also, I'm not proud of, of my promiscuity, but I'm also, you know, I understand that, you know, back in the day, you know, I was somewhat of a barrio, but, um, but yeah, you know, but since then, you know, I got a kid and I settled down and, um, I of course have, used my ability to sell things like use my background here and there, but I've never really truly like weaponized it until very recently working with Bravo Sierra and, and working in a traditional uh, business development uh, role um, essentially, which is, is very much a sales role. And like my CEO at one point, you know, he's like, Hey man, like, you know, you're a knife salesman, you're convincing you. But the trick to that is, is, you know, you have to align yourself with brands and organizations that are authentic to you, share the same core values and are something that you can really get excited about because I can only pretend to be excited about something for so long, right? I can only fake the funk for so long. And that's, what's been helpful about, you know, owning a CrossFit gym. And that's, what's been helpful about working for Bravo Sierra is they're, they're both organizations or things that I've, I've been very passionate about. So I've been lucky that it's easy for me to evangelize on behalf of these organizations because I believe in them so much. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's only very recently where I've gotten like really focused and started to develop specified acumen around my ability to sell, like, and have just kind of like owned it, like own the fact that that is indeed what I do with sales. It's, it's been, cause like when I, when I'm doing it, I feel kind of grimy, you know, I'm kind of like, God damn it. You know, here I am trying to convince somebody to do something, you know, but like, you know, I'm good at it. What is it like going from being your own boss, being a business owner for a bunch of years to then taking a job where you're not the CEO, you're not the owner? Uh, what is that discussion like? It It's it's difficult. That's been challenging. That's probably the, the biggest challenge that I run into now is that um, I, I cannot, as a business owner and as a, you know, owning my own business, owning my own gym, 
rarely did I stumble on problems that I couldn't fix on my own. Anything from figuring out how to apply for an SBA loan, navigating how to pay quarterly taxes, you know, all kinds of, I'm sure it's worse in New York City, but in Florida, you know, you got to pay sales retail, you know, retail sales tax, regular property taxes, this thing called tangible goods, which they tax you for every piece of like physical property that you own, because technically if you own something, you're monetizing it in such a way to sell other things. So they get to tax you on things that you already own, which the first time I got a notification in the mail that said I owned, I owed taxes for things that I had already owned. I thought it was a joke and like crumbled it up and threw it in the, in, in the trash. And then like got like a cease and desist from the County. Like two years later, they're like, we're going to take a lien against your organization. I like called them up. I was like, Hey, I thought it was, thought it was a scam. You know, I thought you were like a Nigerian prince trying to get my social security number or something that didn't sound real. But, um, but the thing is, is like I was always able to figure it out on my own. And when I started working for Bravo Sierra in the consumer product good industry, you know, I'm an, I'm an industry outsider and there's a lot of things that I, I didn't know about. And I had to ask for help, had to ask for help. I, I failed a bunch I had to ask people inside my organization for help. And I'm telling you right now, like when you're at a startup and everybody essentially, like I was the ninth employee, everybody in the company at that point, I mean, it was a flat organization. Everybody was an executive, you know, like everybody was either a director, VP or SVP, you know? So, you know, if you're asking somebody for help, you're, you know, you're, you're asking for somebody, you know, who's an executive level official for help to stop what they're doing and give you a hand for something. And you got to make sure that you're communicating what it is that you're doing, why you're doing it, how it's going to help everybody else. You got to make sure that everybody understands that when you're asking for something, you're doing so because it, it equates a piece of a larger puzzle that's going to ensure organizational success. And, you know, back in the day when I was in the military, that was once again, legal authority, right? Hey, we all have the same mission. We're war fighters. That's what we're here to do. But honestly, it's not the same in the private sector. You know, people are there for different reasons. They're there because this position offers them a, a specified type of work-life balance. They probably get paid a shitload and just enjoy the job. Or, you know, they got brought there by somebody else inside the company who had worked with them previously, and they enjoy that working relationship. So there's a lot of different motivating factors for individuals inside the private sector. And particularly when you're working at the executive level, if you're not able to navigate those relationships and really figure out how to ask for things, how to motivate others to work on a team with you, you're really, really going to suffer. And I bet you it's my, my sense that a lot of veterans struggle with that when they work in the private sector, particularly when they're working for larger, uh, like, you know, organizations that are architecturally flat, like, you know, like consulting firms or working in finance, you know, these kind of organizations, like everybody is important. Everybody's an executive. It's difficult to go and find some other person who's managing their own P&L, managing their own vertical, managing millions of dollars of money and be like, hey, I need you to stop what you're doing and help me with something. Because, oh, by the way, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to make a pivot table on Excel because I'm an idiot, you know, and I need help. Or, hey, like I need help with this graphic design issue, you know, so that I can better articulate what we can offer to a potential commercial partner. And I'm not a graphic designer and I need your help. Even though I know you're busy as hell, I need you to stop what you're doing and help me out. Um, that has been super challenging, but it's also been an excellent teaching point for me. And I think it's been super valuable for me to learn that. When you transition to working with other private civilians, when you're looking up, it's the military is about decorum and protocol, but 
there's less of that in civilian work life, but it's about time, right? Time is the most precious thing and people get paid for their time and people have a lot of shit to do. And if you're taking their time, it better be for something useful and uh, you better be prepared with what you actually want their time for. Whereas in the military, it's just like, this guy's got a bird on his chest. I have some bars on my chest. Ooh, <laughs> right? yeah. it's like big, right? Um, but that guy's probably got all the time in the well, not all the time in the world, but he's got time. Um, and then I think looking across and down as a civilian, it's like people have very different skill sets, but it's also they respond to different stimuli, and it's tough sometimes to get somebody to do what you need them to do not just with your personal business goals but collaboratively whereas in the military it's like people have typically the same skill set they're just better than each other at like a finite set of skills but it's incredibly easy to get someone to do what you want you just tell them and if they don't do it there are consequences yeah and I think in a lot of ways, even though it required more finesse inside the business that I own, there's still like, I'm, I am, I'm the apex predator there. I'm in charge of the entire organization, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm the one cog that cannot be replaced, even though in reality, I for sure could be replaced very easily, just not legally. Right. Legally. Yeah. yeah. But, but that's not, that's not the case, right? Like, like you said, like I, am not at the top of the food chain in my company. And I know that the people I work with, you know, in some cases are much more busier and have much less time than I do. So like you said, like I, you know, you have to show up prepared and you have to show up understanding that like, if you waste people's time, you just burned up a little bit of social equity and it's difficult, right? You can't keep on making essentially withdrawals from, you know, people's social equity. You know, you need to make deposits, and add value yeah. more than uh, more than you're withdrawing, and, and you know, and I, I do my best when I see friction inside the organization, particularly because you know if you work in business development, your position's inherently a little bit more fluid. You know, you touch a lot of different verticals inside the same organization and have to work in concert with everybody a little bit more often. So I do my best to like help out where I can, but you know, occasionally I still I still have to like I'm like, hey man, I can't I can't help with that right now. I feel guilty every time I do it, but I also know that they understand. And even like if you're going out to dinner in the military, you're doing nothing other than just bullshitting. Yeah. If you're if you're going out to the dinner as a civilian, you're either trying to like deepen your personal relationships because in the military that just happens at work because you spend every waking moment with each other. Yeah. You know, but here you're you're deepening personal relationships. You're kind of trying to make like plans for those relationships, or you're trying to if it's a business dinner or a meeting or whatever, you're trying to be the be the most efficient with that person's time you can be so that you know they enjoy it but you also get shit done and i think that could be a hard transition yeah and it, it's been it's been challenging right? it's been you know it's not not everybody necessarily has the same like mission oriented mindset you know that like uh, a great deal of individuals that spent the majority of their you know professional careers inside the military are in possession of but i you know but that being said i i think my team or the team at Bravo Sierra, they're exceptionally well equipped to operate with one another in a way that's that's very cohesive. I've been really impressed with the entire organization. I mean, like the whole organization, like everybody, 
has her MBA from Columbia, you know, and has worked in, you know, consumer product goods for X amount of years, has all this crazy startup experience. And then like on the side, they're running like ultra marathons. Like everybody I work with is a rock star. It's ridiculous. Well, Ben and I went to Wharton. We wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) We ask everybody who comes on the show the same question. So who do you think you are today if you never served? Man, who do I, who do I think I would be today if I never served? Honestly, I, I think I would be in a very similar position. I think I would be in a very similar position. I think I would have spent the majority of my young adult life probably selfishly pursuing boyish dreams and goals, you know, looking good naked, physical performance of some variety, like maybe some kind of ultra marathon type guy or, you know, OCR like pro-am type guy. And I'd have probably bebopped around kind of doing stuff like that until I figured out a way to monetize the things that I was passionate about to eventually start my own business and, and take that experience to be a formidable uh, individual in, you know, in, in larger professional organizations. I think my trajectory would have been the exact same. Somebody once asked Mark Cuban what would happen if, if all of his money was taken away and he had to start from square one. He was like, I'd be a millionaire in a year. Like in a, a year from now, I would just be a millionaire again, even if everything was taken from me. My relationships, my cash, my assets, all that stuff. Similarly, I think I would be in a, in a very similar position. I think my time in the military, although... You know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm not patriotic and like I don't love my country, but I wasn't like off gallivanting around going to war and joining the special forces because I was trying to s- settle some grudge that happened on September 11th or because I like I, I believe red, white and blue. Honestly, I wanted to do it because I was like a young man that wanted to seek adventure and it was the best outlet for me to pursue those desires. And it, and it was an avenue for me to pursue those desires in a way that was self-actualizing. It made me feel good. I felt good about my service and I did. And I, I honored my oath. I, you know, I did what I said I was going to do. I raised my right hand, you know, I swore in and I stuck to it. And, you know, in exchange, the army gave me a really square deal, but I think I'd be on a similar trajectory. I think I would have, I would have run around kind of pursuing danger and adventure in some way, shape or form, like been a merchant Marine or some goofy shit like that. Um, until I got into my early thirties and I would have probably, settled down with whatever nest egg that I had to start my own business and use that as a platform to spring into, into larger ventures, which is exactly what I've done. I know you're proud your sister joined, but how much does that mean to you? It means a lot to me. You know, whenever I remember for, for a long time, whenever somebody would ask the question, like, who's your hero, you know, like, who's your hero? Like people are like, oh, you know, Dwayne, the rock Johnson or whatever, you know, fucking Luke Skywalker. If you're a nerd, you know, like, <laughs> But like for me, like uh, the heroes in my life are are my mom and my sister. Like my mom raised me, you know, mostly by herself and like continues to make tremendous sacrifices for both me and my sister. She's my absolute hero. And my sister is no different. Like, you know, she is a army officer and she's served in a position that was traditionally reserved for men only. So she's in a combat arms position. She's a field artillery officer. And she absolutely crushed it while she was in Germany, was consistently rated uh, number one amongst her peers, you know, had a, had a kid. And as a result of her and her husband's various deployments and training rotations, spent the majority of her time 
you know, a geographic bachelorette with her child and still managed to like graduate from the career course and is doing exceptionally well and is now, you know, moving to Bragg. And I, I could not be more proud of her. And as a single dad who has a lot of help, I have a lot of help. You know, I have help from my son's mom. I have help from my mom. I have a robust social network that I can tap into. I got daycare. I got every conceivable means of support available. My sister has none of that and is still figuring it out. I'm here to tell you, like, I don't, I have no fucking idea how she does it. You know, I do. I do. Actually, I do know how she does it. She doesn't have personal time. She's just sacrificing personal time for several years, you know, so that she can raise a kid and be an army officer. Right? She's, I've, I've never been more proud of anybody in my life than I am of my sister. And I maintain that my mom and my sister are my heroes. That's awesome. We just recorded less than 24 hours ago uh, an episode where we had four women on who were former guests on the show. And uh, we, we talked for a couple hours about their experiences, both in service and, uh, and after, you know, as veterans. And I got to ask one question because Megan was actually running the show. But I said, who, who do you look up to? Who inspires you? And for most of them, it was it was like their peers or the people who are closest to them. It wasn't some, you know, I mean, like Tulsi's great, but it wasn't like, oh, it's her. No, it was like the people that I had been through shit with, the people I had seen firsthand uh, who were inspiring me, you know, female drill sergeants. Uh, Megan's mom was in the army. Yeah. Um, you know, other, other women that they had served with. Shannon Kent obviously was brought up, but because she shed light on the fact that women had been serving, right? And she was formerly unknown. And I thought that was uh, really interesting. It might have been the, the lay way in which I asked the question that let me get surprised. Yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting to think of. And like I said, I'd, I'd never, whenever somebody had like, who's your hero? I was like, what are you talking about? You know, like, not some nerd running around looking up to people. I don't need to look up to anybody. But it wasn't until recently, like once I had a kid and like understood the kind of sacrifices that people are making as parents, as soldiers, as professionals. And when you see somebody doing all those things in concert, it's impressive. Last question. When are you running for mayor of Tampa? Oh man, listen, I think I'm going to start as a County commissioner. And I think that's the way to go. You know, just making basic decisions about like sidewalks and parks and stuff like that. And then I'm going to go from there. And I've, I've done a little bit of volunteer work with uh, some of the local political parties. Incidentally, both, you know, the RNC and the DNC, like I've, I've volunteered for both just to like see what they're working with. But if I'm being honest, like I do have machinations eventually to run for probably like a humble public office of some variety in and around Hillsborough County. Community is really important to me. And I, if I'm able to do it, I'd like to, I'd like to put myself in the middle of uh, community building at a more macro level. And I think like maybe County commissioner is a good, is a good way to start you know, not having any of the requisite uh, credentials to be a politician, whatever those are, you know, a law degree and storied history of drug abuse, I, I guess. I don't, I don't have either of those. I could work towards and both. A par- and a parent who was a politician. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I'm, I can't do anything about the parent stuff, but I could probably go to law school and work on drug addiction if I really needed to, but we'll yeah. see. Jury's out. Do you think the mayor right now has the city skyline tattooed? D- Jane Castor? I don't think she's gone to those links, but as former law enforcement officer, I do have a great amount of respect for her. I think, I think she's um, the traditional 
like a Spartan king, like, you know, served in the ranks later on uh, to, to, you know, to sit on the throne. And I think that's a great way for politicians to grow up. But uh, no, she, she, she's not dedicated in that way, I don't think. Ben has a uh, the city of Tampa, right, it's, tattooed on you? It's the Tampa City skyline. I mean, most people think it's like the Twin Towers. That, like, they'll see the American flag and, like, skulls and shit, and they're like, oh, man, like, that's for sure a September 11th tattoo. And, although I believe it was, it was a tremendous tragedy, and I'm never going to forget it, and it for sure changed the trajectory of my life. I do not have the Twin Towers tattooed on my arm. I do also have a portrait-style uh, uh, picture of Chuck Norris tattooed on the inside of my arm. It's very important. Yeah. Do you draw inspiration from him? Yeah, it's aged well. I mean, those jokes are still funny to me. It definitely <laughs> captured a specific moment in time. For anybody that was alive in 2010, you couldn't you couldn't throw a rock without hitting somebody that was telling a Chuck Norris joke. My mom doesn't necessarily like it, but, you know, can't please them all. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, we can only hope to just roundhouse kick everyone we see. Yeah. And in, uh, in, in, in tight jeans and end the fight immediately. <laughs> That's the hope. Climb up a climb up a friggin' God man, where he's climbing up the rope into the plane while the plane is taken off. Yeah. After he's after he's standing on the motorcycle that just shot rockets off the front of it. Yeah, I think the tattoo that I have is from Invasion America. I, I think at one point he had driven like a, a Jeep Comanche into a mall and shot up a bunch of people with Uzis. You know, sta- standard stuff. I wonder what he's, he's never had to aim a gun in his life. No, not at all. Which I, is impressive. It is impressive. I wonder what he's doing right now. He's probably like on his like weird Chuck Norris, Norris version of the Bowflex, like, you know, air <laughs> chopping stuff. You know what I mean? Drinking beet juice or some shit. I don't know. You know? He's got to be ancient by now. Yeah, he's in his 80s or something. All right. Ben, what, what instructions do we have? Same as yesterday? Yeah, that was awesome. So we can I'm end gonna... on Chuck Norris, right? What was that? We can we can end on some Chuck Norris appreciation. Hell yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Ben leading people and building businesses. To see more, follow at coach underscore bunny, at Cigar City CrossFit, and at Bravo Sierra underscore USA on Instagram. As always, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What. When you're in Texas, look behind you. Cause that's where the Rangers are.